Amen. Well, good evening. Merry Christmas. Uh, for those of you who haven't already, you may be seated. Welcome to the Parkway Church. My name is Jeff, one of the pastors uh, here. Glad that you are with us for our Christmas Eve service. Uh, we will uh, we'll be looking at a particular text from the Old Testament uh, this evening from Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 through 7. That's what we're going to be uh, looking at. It's a, a traditional Christmas text. It's one that I have heard read dozens and dozens of, of times, but I've never actually heard preached, and so I thought it would be fun for me to kind of preach it to myself. And, uh, and so that's what we're going to be doing uh, this evening. And so let's read that from Isaiah 9, 6 through 7. It says, For to us a child is born, To us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Let's pray uh, for our short time uh, together this evening. I ask first that you would just pray for yourself. I know that uh, many of us come with uh, distracted minds and uh, divided hearts as we think about dinners to eat and uh, presents to open and all of those traditions to engage in. And then would you pray for those around you that the Lord would give them uh, an open heart and uh, eyes to see and ears to hear. For uh, many of us, it's a joyful season. For others, it's a season of suffering and sorrow with various pains and circumstances. And then lastly, would you pray for me that the Lord would give me boldness and faithfulness to proclaim his word. So Father, we do ask for your blessing upon this time. We confess that you are good and you have demonstrated that goodness in myriad ways, but primarily in giving your son for us. And so we worship him in spirit and truth. We pray that your spirit would help us confess that we can do nothing apart from your help, and that includes understanding and embracing and treasuring the truth of your word this evening, and so pray that your spirit would help us to see and to worship Jesus. It's in his name we pray, amen. Well, when I was a a kid, we had a tradition in my family whereby we would go and we would spend Christmas Eve with my mom's family. My dad's family kind of lived all over the U.S., uh, but my mom's family all stayed within about 20 miles or so of, uh, of my hometown of Baytown, Texas. And, uh, and so every uh, Christmas Eve, we would get together with all of the extended family. So it would be my great-grandmother, uh, who lived until I was about 20, uh, and then my grandparents, and then aunts, and uncles, and cousins, and my immediate family. And we would just descend like a horde upon someone's house for uh, Christmas Eve. And, uh, and so while we were there, we would uh, eat dinner together, and then we would uh, open presents. And the whole time that we're sitting there and we're uh, eating dinner, I'm not actually eating dinner. 
who can eat ham at a time like this, there's this stack of presents that is just waiting uh, to be opened. And so that is all I thought about. I would just stare and, uh, 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 and just kind of in awe and wonder, uh, in amazement at the glory that is going to be uh, to come. Uh, not knowing uh, that it was going to also be chaos uh, as we engaged in this gift opening, but I would sit there at the dinner table, not eating any food, just simply staring in the other room at that uh, mound of presents until my grandparents would say the magic words and we would be released from the table and we would adjourn into the other room and, uh, and then the madness would truly begin." But even then, once we got into that other room and we began to opening, uh, opening gifts, I realized my joy was not yet complete because we decided that we needed to do this systematically. And so you would open one gift and then you'd have to wait like 15 minutes for it to get back around to you to open a gift. Meanwhile, I'm thinking, I don't care about my uncle's underwear. I don't care at all that he got new socks. That's great that you got new socks. I want my gifts. I want my toys. I want all of those sort of, uh, of things. But we would go and we would do this whole process. It would take a couple of hours for everyone to open all of their gifts. And by the time that we finished, uh, myself, my siblings, my cousins would just be passed out. Like we had just engaged in some sort of gift feeding frenzy. And we are now kind of uh, hibernating for the rest of the winter. And, uh, and so my parents would then pick us up and they would put us in uh, the car for the drive home. Now, this was the early 80s before there was like mandatory seatbelt laws. And so back then, uh, parents would just put their kids anywhere on the floorboards, in the trunk, on the roof. It didn't matter, right? And, uh, and so we would just sleep the entire 20, 30-minute ride back to our house. And so it would be this uh, really silent and joyful and restful night for us. I would fall asleep there at my aunt or uncle's house, and, uh, and then I would somehow mysteriously wake up in my own bed on Christmas morning. Not knowing that my parents had gone through all of the rigmarole, I don't even know what rigmarole is, uh, gone through all that process of getting me out of the car and getting into bed. So for me, it was a very restful night. For my parents, I realized it was not a very restful night. They had to get us into the car. They had to get us out of the car. They had to change our clothes. They had to bring in all of the presents. They had to wash dishes. They had to put together all the presents that we were going to open the next day. So while I'm sleeping, my parents are working and working hard. I didn't realize this until I myself was a parent. And then I realized that Christmas Eve is not a very restful night for adults, that is. Right? It's great for kids, but for adults, it's a lot of work. So I fully expect that tonight I will be up till 3, maybe 4 a.m. If you were me, you would probably only be up till uh, midnight. But what takes like an average person an hour to do takes me like four or five hours because I'm that unhandy. Uh, so I know I will be up late, and that's just a consequence of the fact that I have some sort of problem uh, and I can't do stuff. But anyway... I, uh, I tell you that because there is this juxtaposition between the, uh, the work that the parents do and the rest that the kids are experiencing, and that is something that we see in our text this evening. That is the reality of the gospel itself. While the father is at work, the children are asleep. I don't throw a box, a wrapped box, at my six-month-old son and say, Cannon, figure this out. I don't make my daughter put together all of her toys. I do the stuff. 
Likewise, in the gospel, likewise, in our text that we're going to look at this evening, God does all this stuff. We simply rest. That's the reality of the kingdom of God. So let's look at Isaiah 9, starting in verse 6. We're not going to preach through the whole thing. Again, this is kind of a sermonette. Um, if, we were, uh, if we had time, if we were going to be doing this on a Sunday morning, we'd work through all the de- little details, but we're going to kind of give more of an overview uh, this evening. So looking at Isaiah 9, uh, verse 6, look at this first little section here. For to us, a child is born, to us, a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. So our passage begins with this messianic hope. The word messianic is a word related to the word for Messiah, a Christ, a a king is going to be born. And so it begins with this messianic hope, this prophetic expectation of one who would be the son of David. Who was David? David was the greatest king of the Old Testament. So there's going to be one who would be a king like David, but even better than David, a son of David, the king of Israel. And this is really, really important in the context of Isaiah's uh, 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 prophecy here because the kingdom in Isaiah's day is absolutely crumbling. It's spiraling toward destruction. If you've ever spun a top, you know that eventually there comes a point where that top begins to wobble. Wobble? Wobble. I don't know what wobble is. Wobble. I'm using all kinds of words. I don't know what they mean. Wobble. The, the, the top begins to wobble. And what's that signify? It signifies that the end is near. And that's what's happening in Isaiah's day. That the kingdom is spinning wildly and wildly out of control. The, the, the northern kingdom of Israel, in fact, during Isaiah's very day, is going to be exiled by the Assyrians. And Isaiah is going to to prophesy that the same thing is going to happen to the southern kingdom of Judah, that the the Babylonians are going to come and they're going to take over uh, Judah and they're going to exile it as well. But in the midst of this darkness, in the midst of of this uh, time period where the kingdom is absolutely crumbling, in the midst of the darkness, there's this faint flicker of light on the horizon. Out of the ashes emerges this little glimmer of light. Look at verses 1 and 2 of Isaiah 9. So just a few verses earlier uh, than what we're reading here in 6 through 7. But it says, There will be gloom, there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who have dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shown. So again, in the midst of darkness, and that is what is uh, occurring in Isaiah's day. The kingdom is dark. In the midst of this darkness, surrounded by evil kings, surrounded by idolatry, by immorality, by exile, by judgment, by famine, by war, there's light on the horizon. And that light is a child. That's the prophecy here. This light is going to come in the form of a child, a son, and it says that he wears the government on a shoulder as a king would wear a robe on his shoulders because this son is himself a king. He's the son of David. He's the Messiah. He is the Christ, the anointed one. Let's look at the next phrase to see a little bit more about who he is For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, 
and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. My, uh, my daughter has a funny way of answering any question that begins with the phrase, do you know? You ask her any questions that begins with the phrase, do you know? And the answer is yes. Doesn't matter if she actually knows it or not. You ask her, do you know something? And she says, yes. Do you know what time it is? Yes. She doesn't know how to tell time. Do you know what we're doing tomorrow? Yes. Do you know what penal substitutionary atonement is? Yes. Doesn't matter. She just says yes to anything. Uh, So I will ask her a question. I'll say, do you know what we're doing tomorrow? She says, yes. And then I'll say, what are we doing tomorrow? And she'll look at me and then she'll whisper, tell me, daddy. Tell me, daddy. That's her her response. So each Christmas, my uh, my wife and I hang this banner behind our dinner table, uh, over the windows uh, behind the table. And, uh, and so this year, as we're hanging it, I look at my uh, daughter, Larkin, uh, and I ask her, do you know what that says? Point to the banner and says, do you know what that says? She obviously said, yes. And so I said, well, what does it say? And I expect her to say, tell me, daddy. But instead, she looks at it. She acts like she can read. She's three. She can't read. If, if your child is three and they can read, that's congrats, but my can't. And she looks at it and she goes, that says Merry Christmas, which is a great answer. Totally wrong. Totally wrong. It doesn't say Merry Christmas at all. Instead, it is a list of names or roles of Jesus. It says Word of God and Good Shepherd and Light of the World. There's actually 24 uh, of them. And so it might be tempting for us when we read Isaiah 9, 6, it might be tempting for us to read this uh, kind of like that banner. It's this list of distinct titles that Jesus is Wonderful Counselor. In another title, he's Mighty God. In another title, he's Everlasting Father. And he's also Prince of Peace. It's kind of tempting uh, to do it like that. We've been watching The Crown lately. I don't know if anyone's watched The Crown, but uh, watching The Crown lately. So I'll use the royal family as an example. It might be tempting to read this passage in Isaiah 9, kind of like uh, the various titles for a member of the royal family. Like Prince Charles, he's the Prince of Wales, he's the Earl of Chester, he's the Duke of Cornwall, and, uh, and so forth. The problem with that is in Hebrew, it's actually less like a list of separate titles and more like one really long name. Anyone know Prince Charles's actual name? It's actually Charles Philip Arthur George, that's his name. He actually doesn't have a last name. It could be uh, Windsor, but actually members of the royal family don't have to have a last name, and so he chooses not to have uh, a last name. And that's what his name is, Charles Philip Arthur George. Throughout the Old Testament in general, and in Isaiah in particular, names signify something of the character of the person that is being described, the person that is being called, the person that is being named So this son, this future king who is to be born is called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. If you read those without the commas, you kind of get a sense of the flow that Isaiah intends here for us to see in terms of his name. Now, if we were doing a full exposition of this text, if we had the time, then what we would do is we would delve into the meaning of each of those phrases. But we don't have that time uh, this evening But I do want to briefly comment on one of those, that is eternal father. Uh, And the reason is because we spend a lot of time here at Parkway talking about Trinitarianism, because Trinitarianism is kind of the foundation of Christianity. Uh, It is what distinguishes Christianity from the cult and all other world religions. 
It is about the only doctrine that every branch of Christianity, whether you are Eastern Orthodox or Roman Catholic or Protestant, every branch agrees on and every other religion and every cult disagrees on. So we spend a lot of time talking about Trinitarianism. And so the phrase here where it says that he is the eternal or the everlasting father could be somewhat confusing. When we talk about Trinitarianism, we're talking about the doctrine of the Trinity, the nature of God. There is one God, only one God. That is very clear throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament. There is only one God, but that one God eternally exists as three distinct persons. The Father, but the Father is not the Son, and the Father is not the Spirit. The Son is not the Spirit or the Father. The Spirit is not the Father or the Son. So how is it that Christians believe that the Son is not the Father, and yet Isaiah says that the Son will be called everlasting Father. Is that a contradiction? Is that an inconsistency? And the answer to that is no, not at all. So what do we do with that? Really, really simply, just because this could be confusing, I want you to think about it like this. This verse is not talking about the Son who is to be born in relation to the Godhead. It's not talking about the Son in relation to the Heavenly Father. Instead, it's talking about the Son in His relation, in His character toward His people, right? The Son is not a Father in relation to the Heavenly Father. The Son is not Father when it comes to the Godhead, when it comes to the Trinity, but He is fatherly in the way that He cares for His people, right? He's fatherly in His care for us. There is a sense in which Jesus is like a father to His people and that he does all the things that a good father does for his children. He shepherds us. He disciples us. He disciplines us. He protects us. He encourages us. He teaches us. He reveals to us the love of the father. And not only is he a father in his care for us, but he is an everlasting father. His paternal love for you is eternal. It's infinite. It's inexhaustible. It's never-ending. So you have all of these terms here, and these terms do more than just demonstrate these disconnected titles of Jesus. They show something of the eternal character of the Son, that he's wise, that he's mighty, that he's loving, that he's authoritative, that he's king of kings, and he is the prince of peace. Speaking of his authority and kingdom, let's keep going in the passage for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. If you've uh, been coming to Parkway for any period of time, uh, then you know that we like to talk about the kingdom. That's one thing that we talk about probably more than anything else here at Parkway. We talk about the kingdom, the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. The reason that we do that is because Jesus talks about the kingdom more than he talks about anything else. More than love, more than faith, more than grace, more than anything else, Jesus talks about the kingdom. The why? Why is it that Jesus talks about the kingdom more than anything else? Because the kingdom is the gospel. In fact, if you're reading in the Gospels, the, the, uh, the authors of the Gospels will often use the phrase, the gospel of the kingdom. What is the kingdom? The kingdom is the gospel. What is the gospel? The gospel is the kingdom. So what is the kingdom? 
Well, the kingdom succinctly is a picture, a vision, the truth of creation that is in unfettered communion with creator. That's what the kingdom is, creation in unfettered communion with creator. Imagine, if you even can, imagine a world that has been untainted by the effects of the fall. There's no sickness, there's no death, there's no sin, there's no suffering. That's the kingdom. That existed in Genesis 1 and 2. That's the vision of Revelation 21 through 22. The problem is, after Genesis 1 and 2, you have Genesis 3, and that ruins absolutely everything because in that we see the introduction of sin into the world. So everything from Genesis 4 through Genesis 20 is basically God's redemptive plan to, uh, to defeat the kingdom of the enemy and to restore his own kingdom. That's why Jesus talks about it because this is what Jesus is all about That's his passion, that's his mission, the kingdom of God. Everything he does is wired to demonstrate the kingdom. And so he systematically demonstrates his authority over every obstacle, every adversary to the kingdom. That's the message of the gospels. That's what you see over and over. When you read the gospels, you see this story of the kingdom playing out over and over and over and over again. When Jesus does miracles, what is he doing? He's not David Blaine. He's not just a street magician that's doing these magic tricks to impress the disciples or something like that. What is he doing? He's demonstrating his authority. He's demonstrating the kingdom. Authority over what? Over everything. That's what he's doing. He's demonstrating his authority over absolutely everything. He's demonstrating his authority over the adversaries of the kingdom. And so you see Jesus in his temptation, he resists Satan. And then you see him later and he drives out the demons. What's he doing there? He's showing that he has authority even over the spiritual powers. He heals the sick, he heals the lame, he heals the blind. What's he doing? Not cool magic tricks. He's demonstrating that he has authority even over sickness and disorders. He forgives sin. What's he doing? He's showing that he has authority over spiritual bondage. He walks on the water, he stills the storm. What's he doing? He's showing that he has authority even over creation itself. He raises the dead to show that he has authority over death and he himself dies for sin and rises from the dead to show that he has authority over that and to demonstrate that death itself has been mortally wounded and that its time is soon up. What does this have to do with Isaiah? What Isaiah is doing here in Isaiah 9 is he's giving us this little preview, this little foretaste of the age to come. He's giving us a little uh, glimpse, a little glimmer of this hint of hope of a kingdom. A kingdom which in Isaiah's day is a distant future, but in our day, today, uh, here in uh, 2019, almost 2020, uh, has already been inaugurated. A kingdom which has already been inaugurated in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, but it's not yet consummated. In Christ's life, in his death, in his resurrection, the kingdom has begun, but it's not yet completed. We call this the reality of the already, but not yet. It's already here, but it's not yet here. Kind of like you have a present in front of you. You haven't yet unwrapped it. It's there. It's yours, but you haven't yet fully unwrapped it or you haven't taken it out of the box, or you haven't put batteries in, or whatever it is, it's already but not yet. 
And this means that there is this inseparable, inseparable link between the first advent and the second advent. Between the incarnation, which is the first advent, the first coming of Christ, and the return of Christ, which is the second advent, the second coming of Christ, in which he comes to make all things new. There is this inseparable link between those days. There's also this inseparable link between Christmas and Easter. See, Christmas, what we celebrate this season, only makes sense in light of what we celebrate on Easter. And vice versa, by the way. The incarnation means nothing apart from the truth that there is going to be a crucifixion and resurrection of this baby that is born here in a manger. And his crucifixion means nothing apart from the truth that the word has become flesh. And that little baby in the manger is the God-man. He's the second person of the Trinity. A mere man dying for your sins can't save you, but one who is fully God and fully man, that child can save you. That child did save his people. So this son who was born is king, and you see the results of his rule here in this passage. Peace, there's justice, there's righteousness. Throughout the Bible, you see this principle that plays out over and over and over again. That is, that when evil kings reign, the people suffer. The kingdom crumbles, as it did in Isaiah's day. But, opposite of that, when good kings rule, what happens? The kingdom prospers, the kingdom thrives, the kingdom flourishes. How much more when a perfect king lives in a perfected world with his perfected people. That's what this passage encourages us to await. Let's keep going. Last phrase. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. Last phrase. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. I want you to think for just a second of this from the perspective of Isaiah's contemporaries. Hundreds of years before the birth of Christ, this vision of a perfected kingdom must have sounded like such a pipe dream. There's no way that this passage could be accomplished apart from the miraculous sovereign will or zeal of the Lord. Remember the context of Isaiah's day. The kingdom of Israel is divided. The northern kingdom is about to be exiled to Assyria and will almost, by the way, completely disappear from the annals of history. Judgment and exile are coming on the south as well. Most of the people are idolaters. Most of the kings are evil. So this seems like wishful thinking, this vision of this kingdom. And in a sense, it is wishful thinking in the sense that we should long for it. We should yearn for this vision of the kingdom to be consummated. We should hunger for and desire the return of Christ, the consummation of the kingdom. If you don't desire this, if you don't yearn for this, what does that imply about you? A few days ago, we, uh, we let our six-month-old son try uh, solid foods, somewhat solid foods, mashed up avocado. Uh, so try solid foods uh, for the first uh, time. And my wife, Casey, told my three-year-old daughter that she could feed her brother his first bites of food. For the next 15 minutes, my daughter was beaming. She was thrilled. She was excited. Come on, Daddy. Let's go. 
Let's feed Cannon. Can I feed him? Can we do it now? Is it time? Why are we waiting? Hurry. Over and over. 15 minutes of that. And if anyone knows my daughter, you know she could literally keep that going for 15 minutes. She's a very energetic young child. But why? Why was it that she was uh, continually uh, uh, exclaiming that she wanted to do this and we, she wanted to hurry and she was yearning and hungering and, and longing for this experience? Why? Because she was delighted at the aspect. Now the idea of feeding a child might not sound exciting to you, but to my daughter, it was delightful. She was delighted. Likewise, there should be a sense of anticipation for the rule and reign of Christ to be fully consummated, to be finally and fully realized. Imagine this, no death, no pain, no sorrow, no suffering, none of the adversaries to our joy and hope and life If we really believed that vision of the kingdom, how could we not earnestly and eagerly desire it? So Christmas is not only about looking back to the birth of Christ, but also looking forward to his return. Christmas is about hope. Hope in the midst of suffering, hope in the midst of sin, hope in the midst of death and all the effects of the fall. Hope that one day that will all be eradicated. So this is, in the sense, it is wishful thinking in the sense that we should think about it and we should wish for it. But obviously, in another sense, it's not at all wishful thinking because it will happen. It's certain. It's assured. God has promised this. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. And notice how it comes about. Not by man's effort. Not by your effort. Not by my effort. Not by mankind collectively deciding to roll up our sleeves and get to work but by grace, not by our zeal, but God's. Each Christmas, we Christians tend to talk about the reason for the season, and we tend to, uh, to, to talk these truisms, like it's more blessed to give than to receive, and that's certainly true when it comes to horizontal relationships. There is a grace in us giving freely of ourselves, but when it comes to the gospel, that is exactly bas- backward. The gospel is not the story of what we give to God, You don't give your best to God. God has given his son for you. Remember, the father works while his children sleep. Indeed, even while we were in a state worse than sleep, while we were dead in our trespasses and sin. So in light of our text, I just have two exhortations this evening. That's it. Just two encouragements to orient our heart around as we prepare for the holidays. The first one is, would you rest in Christ? Whether you've ever actually trusted in Christ or not, you have an opportunity right here, right now. There's no magic prayer you have to say. You just have to receive Christ. You have to trust in him. You have to believe the things that I'm saying. So would you rest in Christ? Not your intelligence, not your love for others, not your good deeds, not your philanthropy, not your altruism, not your church attendance, not your morality, not even in your faith or the power of your faith but simply in King Jesus, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, fully God, fully human, born in a manger of the Virgin Mary, crucified and buried, risen from the dead and ascended to the right hand of the Father who will one day return and make all things new. Would you rest in him? Would you trust in him? Would you believe upon him right now? Second exhortation in light of the first, may we be a people who not only look back 
and celebrate and rejoice that Christ has come? Yes and amen. That's what Christmas is primarily about, celebrating the incarnation of Christ. But would we also be a people who yearn, who long, who cry out, come Lord Jesus, because we're anxious for the day that he will return and make all things new and make all that is sad untrue. So may we be a people who cry out, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. That's the hope of Christmas. Let's pray and then we will, uh, we will sing and we'll light candles and hopefully not set each other on fire. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the prophet Isaiah and for this, prophesy, uh, this prophecy of the kingdom, a kingdom that we have seen uh, in part, but we long to see it in whole. And so I pray that you would give us an eagerness for it a hunger and thirst and earnest desire for the day when you will make all things new. And I pray that you would help us, Lord, whether we've ever actually trusted in Christ or not, that you would open our eyes and our minds and our hearts to love and trust the God-man, your son. We love you, Lord. I love you. I love these people. I love our little church. I pray that you would make us a people who are hungry for your kingdom. Would you do these things because you're a good father who gives good gifts and you've proven that by giving us your son. It's in his name we pray, amen.